Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today joining us on the show in person, Joe McCann, founder, CEO, and CIO of Asymmetric. Now, before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. All right. Once again, we are very excited to welcome Joe McCann, founder, CEO, and CIO of Asymmetric the venture hedge fund. What, what, it's an investment firm of all yes. shapes and sizes. You have a very unique approach to the market. We talked about it when you launched the fund. That's right. How's business? Business is booming. Mm. <laughs> uh, yes, we are a, uh, a, we call it a modern day crypto fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we, we are kind of like a hedge fund, kind of like a venture fund, but then also do a lot of crypto native stuff. So mm-hmm. it's uh, all things crypto, um, but we do, yeah, private investments in early stage startups. We have a, uh, you know, a liquid strategy and then crypto native stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, so w- what's sort of the underpinning thesis of the venture side? Yeah, so we, we tend to focus early stage. Um, so we're actually, uh, a 10 person company and eight out of the 10 people are founders. So we're, you know, founders backing founders. So we've been in the shoes of a lot of founders. We kind of, you know, have operational experience. We understand the trials and tribulations of building a business. Um, so, you know, that's a benefit to us for the early stage stuff, uh, mm-hmm. but we're also very technical. So half the staff is also, um, you know, kind of very seasoned uh, developers and technologists. Um, and we take a real technical approach to how we uh, view investing in the space. So the kind of like the five key themes that we focus on right now um, is DeFi 2.0, mm-hmm. uh, NFT ecosystem, Web3 infrastructure, metaverse and Web3 video games, and then payments. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot obviously in that, but one of the reasons we tend to have a broader perspective on it is a lot of this stuff t- tends to intersect and overlap. And that's where you tend to find a lot of uh, alpha in the space. Mm-hmm. Circle Ventures backed you guys. That's right. Circle, Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, FTX, Solana, Dan Tiger. at CMS. Yeah, Dan. In that article I wrote when you launched the fund, his his contribution to the story was, "I'm Long Joe." That is correct, and he still is. He still <laughs> is. So, part of what you're doing, which is unique and 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 weird for the crypto world, and I don't know if this has evolved or changed, but you don't necessarily 
you're not a hundred percent long. You're not irresponsibly long. So if the fund has exposure to a token via a specific token deal, it's still going to be relatively pragmatic. And if it moons, you're going to take some off the table. Is that still the case or has that evolved? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, so there is this kind of, uh, I think there's kind of a fragile reputation that a lot of folks in the industry may have concerned with, um, you know, hey, I'm going to invest in this startup and we're in it for the long haul and we're not gonna ever take profits or sell the token or this and that. And the problem with that is, is that that's great for traditional venture capital, where typically you don't have a liquidity event for 10 to 12 years, maybe five, six years in, something like that is an acquisition or a really fast IPO, right? With crypto, we know that it becomes liquid in months, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the way that you kind of manage a traditional venture capital portfolio isn't relevant anymore. You're actually managing a liquid portfolio. And we also know You have that to rip up the old playbook. You kind of do. And this is like, you know, one of the reasons why we kind of position ourselves as like a modern day crypto fund is that we don't really fit into a bucket of we're a venture capital firm or we're a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. It's actually a crypto fund. And it's because the liquid nature of crypto, especially at the early stage, is actually a feature, not a bug of crypto but you actually need to know how to manage a liquid portfolio, right? So if you have a 150 vol asset in your portfolio, uh, you may wanna manage that, right? Mm -hmm. At least manage downside risk, let alone you know, take profits. And one of the reasons why we, we do this as well is, or we will do this, is um, sometimes tokens will never reach their all time highs again. And if you're just That's a long- That's blasphemy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's gravity. Um, <laughs> but, um, so look, I mean, we are, we are clearly uh, long-term bulls in the space, right? But we also know that the liquid nature of crypto has changed the dynamic with respect to early stage investing. And so, you know, for example, um, I won't name any tokens, but you can go look at a number of tokens that, you know, kind of launched over the course of the past, call it 24 months, uh, that are 99% down from their all-time highs or 98%, et cetera. That is a very, very Sounds difficult- Sounds like my P&L. <laughs> I did get a peek at that. Yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> to hear. Um, <clears throat> you're not alone. Uh, <laughs> but my point is, is that like, if something's down 99% and you had an opportunity to take some chips off the table, let's be clear, like venture capital firms raise money from outside cap from mm -hmm. LPs, right? They have uh, an obligation or a fiduciary obligation to those LPs to generate returns. That is the business of venture capital. Um, if you're not managing that uh, kind of upside profitability and knowing that there's the potential that the tokens will never reach their all-time highs again, you're actually doing a disservice to your LPs. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I'm very explicit and upfront with founders to say, hey, look, you know, if you choose a token distribution model where you only put 5% of your tokens available on the market and the thing rockets 130X out of the gate, I'm a risk manager. I'm going to take mm -hmm. profits on that, right? I'm very upfront about that because if they were in my position, they'd probably do the exact same thing. And it doesn't mean that we're not long on the space or long on the team or long on the project. It just means that we're doing right by our LPs as fiduciaries to the money that we raise from them. There are sophisticated type of complex strategies that need to be deployed as part of that, let's call it risk management process. This is, this is the kind of stuff that you know, Market Street venture capitalist firms haven't really done. It's not in their DNA. It's it's something you find more in the streets of Chicago. So what are some of those types of strategies that you could execute to manage a liquid book or to manage the liquid, liquid book that you have um, 
different types of tools maybe to express a view using options or other derivatives is that still part of the part of the game plan absolutely i mean look so if you look at if you look at a, a liquid portfolio today in traditional finance right maybe you have some high tech growth stocks mm -hmm. you've got cyclicals you've got utilities you've got financials whatever right mm -hmm. there are ways of protecting that book through options and derivatives and other you know more complex structures right that exists kind of in crypto in some cases is on chain in some cases it's using otc providers like you know genesis mm -hmm. galaxy etc um and other folks i'm just you know picking those because those are well known mm -hmm. um we absolutely employ those tactics right uh and we we think it's actually wise to do so mm -hmm. given the volatility of the asset class now that's not to say that um it's going to work out perfectly for a brand new token that's on the market, right? So like, for example, if a token or a project has their token generation event, which is kind of like their IPO, right? That token probably doesn't have a market made for options yet, mm -hmm. right? So then you have to actually manage the broader book. And you can do this through, uh, you know, liquid options or more liquid options through Bitcoin and Ethereum as a proxy to the volatility or the beta in your book. And that's kind of how we uh, manage the book today. Um, we, we try to use more of like an overlay strategy with options across the long tail of tokens that nece don't necessarily have markets for derivatives yet. Understood. Um, what do you think of the broader market right now? I mean, we're, we're kind of wedded to macro. Yes. Do you see that changing anytime soon? I do not. <laughs> and so. you don't see macro improving anytime soon? No, and, and so, uh, look, our, our view, and, and I, I mentioned this on the panel yesterday, uh, I hate to be the doom and gloom guy, but um, it, it's very simple for us. Our view from a macro perspective has been pretty spot on, um, which is when you pump liquidity in a system for 14 years and then you pull it back in eight or nine months, there's going to be lower asset prices, right? So you have high inflation, high interest rates, lower asset prices. It's just a very fundamental function of the economy. Um, that's Crypto is no different. It's not an isolated asset class to the extent that if you're pulling liquidity out of a global economic system, that crypto is somehow gonna be impervious to this. It's just mm -hmm. not true. Now, we have seen, certainly over the past week, crypto start to decorrelate a little bit, right? So today, uh, we had you know NASDAQ and SP make new year-to-date lows. Bitcoin held 19,000, right? So there is some kind of decorrelation happening, and it's really important to monitor that. But at the end of the day, if the Fed is literally telling us that there's going to be pain inflicted on risk assets, I don't know how crypto can continue to remain sort of decoupled or isolated from that. So our view really is, is we think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we saw, you know, the first step of a-, of a, a How can it get any worse? <laughs> well, um, we just had a massive credit crisis. We we did. So we, prices are most assets, as you as you said, are down ninety percent. I guess they can always go they down. They can another always go down 90%. lower. <laughs> exactly. So look, I mean, uh, we there, there's a there's a there's a number of ways that we can kind of tackle this problem. One is you can look at f the fixed income markets. Two, you can look at the FX markets. Three, you can look at uh, real rates. Four, you can look at equities. You know, and and even you know uh, equities in emerging markets versus developed markets, et cetera. Our view kind of is there is going to be a VAR shock, a value at risk mm -hmm. shock uh, that's going to hit the markets. You're already kind of seeing it. You saw it happen with Bank of England over the past week, right? So yes. they said, we're going to do QT. Uh, pound got decimated. Gilts went parabolic. Mm -hmm. The rate, the rates went parabolic. You know, obviously, uh, bonds went, prices went lower. And then they immediately had to reverse course on that and said, we're going back to QE, right? 
Now, the difference is, is that that's one central bank intervening with Q QE. What we think needs to happen in order for a true kind of bottom to be placed in is the Fed has to actually pivot as well. And I know that everybody is saying at some point the Fed's got to pivot. But the reality is, if you don't have coordination among central banks, you're kind of, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg, right? We saw this with Bank of Japan with the, with the yen that was, you know, just absolutely getting crushed. They said we're going to come in and, you know, kind of stop the bleeding. It worked for about a day, right? And it's because it wasn't coordinated. And so our view is, is that if the central banks actually start to coordinate around QE or some new policy that they want to put, put in place to actually put a floor in prices for risk assets, that's probably the time to actually, you know, get long, not financial advice. But <laughs> of course. Do you see that likely happening? I mean, I feel like the Fed is very serious about tackling inflation and won't stop the bleeding until we get to their target of 2%. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, what's ironic about this situation that we're in right now is that for the past kind of 12, 13 years, people have basically said, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed, right? That's because prices were going up. Mm -hmm. Now... <laughs> They're fighting the Fed as their you know, net worth goes down. And we just don't see that changing. Like, why would you continue to, to fight the Fed? Moreover, uh, you know, not too long ago, about a year ago, there, were not a, there was not a single rate hike priced mm -hmm. by the Fed. Now we're approaching 5% you know, almost for next year. Right? That's a huge change in, in perspective. So if they're willing to go from there's no rate hikes to tons of rate hikes in such a short amount of time, Who's to say that they wouldn't actually pivot back? And so I think that's the other thing you got to look for is that on the one hand, you know, Powell is literally telling you what's going to happen and people are continuing to fight it. We think that's foolish. Um, but we what's do. What's the definition of insanity? <laughs> exactly. Um, but we also think that, you know, there, there's going to be a, a point where, um, the washing out of leverage in the system, which we kind of think at a meta level is kind of what's happening. Uh, there was extreme amounts of excess and leverage that have been kind of tossed around the system. So for example, prior to the global financial crisis, private equity was, you know, it was big-ish, but not super big. Now mm -hmm. it's an order of magnitude larger than it was. And more importantly, the majority of these PE firms are actually levered up three to one. And what you just saw recently over the past week or so, uh, Secretary Gensler is trying to put new capital constraints, taking Dodd-Frank even further. Um, banks are looking at this going like, well, then we're going to cut our lines to private equity. So Citigroup came out, had a $65 billion commitment to private equity. They cut that to $20 billion. Yikes. Now, all of a sudden, what happens is it levered up private equity firms, right? They've got to raise cash somehow. Well, how do they do that with illiquid assets that are marked to market that are clearly not accurate, right? This now creates this sort of cascading, almost like a liquidation cascading crypto, mm -hmm. but it's leverage, right? And so the point that I'm getting to is that intellectually, we are super stimulated by chasing leverage in a system and finding out where it is. And we did this with crypto, right? We mm -hmm. saw what happened over the Q2 with a lot of the kind of CFI lenders that all went belly up. Do you think that that is sort of the market crunch that we found ourselves in or that those centralized lenders and brokers found themselves in is the epilogue of what is to come in broader financial markets. Yeah, look, I think it's even broader than that. I think it's quite literally sweeping leverage out of the system and kind of, you know, creating some sort of reset. But that's that's fairly bullish for crypto to the extent that to the extent that we've already had it happened. There's not that much leverage in the system compared to when Suzu and Kyle Davies were still out and about Buying yachts, yeah. No, totally. Um, I, I completely agree. Look, uh, the 
The downside is, yes, a lot of people got hurt on that and, and we're, we're not stoked for that to have happened. Um, but the reality is, is that there was hidden leverage in the system that needed mm -hmm. to be exposed. And so on the one hand, I think the benefit is to DeFi is that you can see all the stuff on chain. So you know, you actually know who the counterparties are. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may be some weird zero X address, but at the end of the day, it's at least, you know, public information. Whereas if you were parking your money with one of these lenders, you actually didn't know who your counterparty was, right? That's leverage in the system that's hidden. I think this is the same thing that's happening in a lot of traditional markets. As I mentioned, private equity as just one example. Mm -hmm. Another example um, is how we're seeing liquidity be pulled out of the system. If you look at like Chinese equities, for example, I think a lot of people would say, wow, they're deeply undervalued. Mm -hmm. They've got just absolutely crushed, right? These are great companies. But people bid those companies up by placing dollars into those businesses. Well, now when there's a liquidity crisis or liquidity suck for US dollars, they're gonna sell those assets and get US dollars back out. And that has a knock-on effect on the Yuan, right? So it just reached record lows on offshore. Um, the Chinese state banks are trying to step in and provide a floor buying stocks. Why are they doing that? They're trying to stem the bleeding on the Yuan. Is it gonna work? Probably not, we will see. But the point that I'm getting to is that there's even more leverage and liquidity getting pulled out of the system, which theoretically should be kind of like this washout event that we can actually start to rebuild from. Is that gonna happen in a month or two years? Who knows? But that's our view is that until we find out where that leverage is hidden and the liquidity kind of gets pulled out to the extent that we stopped and we can actually start to put liquidity back in, it's gonna be rough waters ahead. We, you guys literally launched right before the music stopped. Um, that's right. It was only a few weeks before everything kind of unraveled uh, this past spring, I guess you can say. Yeah, it was super fun fundraising for the first six months of this year, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, you know, you, you kind of launched there at Pico Top. Right. So uh, don't necessarily envy that. But let's let's think about what's transpired. So there was a lot of leverage that was hidden to an extent, a lot of risk, a lot of counterparty risk that maybe was not paid enough attention to. And the music stopped. Giants became, giants were humbled. Correct, yeah. And lessons have been learned. What lessons do you think have been learned? What lessons do I think have been learned? Um, or we don't really learn these lessons, do we? <laughs> well, so look, I mean, like, I, 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 I hate isn't it. Isn't it wild how it was the players that were supposed to be the grown-ups in the room? That's correct. Yeah. Um, I, I do think this is, and, and, and I hate to be the guy that keeps going back to macro, but like, mm -hmm. honestly, uh, you know, crypto's previous cycles were still in a QE environment, right? So there was always continued liquidity being pushed into the system, just broadly by central banks. Now we're in a non-QE environment and it's a really brutal bear market, not only in crypto, but all asset classes, right? And but particularly crypto. And so our question then becomes like, well, you know, um, do we buy this market or do we sell this market? Because we haven't seen a change in terms of like the broader liquidity profile to justify um, say going all in on some some assets in the space, and so we were fortunate enough um, to have delayed our launch to July first. Mm -hmm. So we missed the majority of you know the big drawdowns that a lot of folks uh, unfortunately. So you didn't allocate until July. That's pretty lucky. That's correct, and we didn't even. I don't think we put our first trade on until mid to late July. Mm. Um, so 
uh, and just to be kind of clear, like we candidly are a heavy cash position right now, um, primarily cash, to be totally honest, uh, because we we see that as probably the best performing asset right now. Um, and we also do think that there's there's idiosyncratic opportunities. Cash or USDC? USDC. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Because <laughs> um, you can get you can still get good lending rates on that, right? Yeah. So we we are generating some carry from that. But look, at the end of the day, we we have a portfolio that has about thirty percent allocated towards private investments. So like your VC early stage types. Thirty percent is that? Yep. And then the remaining is kind of discretionary for what we want to do on the liquid and crypto native stuff. And with that, uh, it's been very very difficult to have long-term conviction when risk assets in general are going lower and the Federal Reserve is telling you they're going lower. Mm -hmm. So why are you getting in front of that train? I mean, again, as a fiduciary to my LPs and as an investment manager and a risk manager, it doesn't make any sense, right? So we are doing you know, some things here and there tactically uh, and we're in good shape, um, but we are not at the level where we're just saying, look, we're going all in and uh, going to start, you know, market buying a bunch of assets, right? We're just not there yet. Why? Please. <laughs> what are you doing? No, I, I think, I think that's fair. Um, you know, you know, who, who says this to me often is, is Dan from CMS. He's yeah. like, some of you fund managers aren't market buying and it shows. And it shows and it's pathetic <laughs> and I'm disgusted. Yes, you should be. Yeah. I, I messaged Dan. I thought he was at the conference. Um, he's not a big conference goer. Dan literally never leaves his hometown. No, no. I, we have tried to get him multiple times to, to come out and hang out with us. So Dan, I know you're listening. We're going to get you. I don't sometime. know. I don't know if he listens to the show. I feel like he's, if he does, he listens to it on like seven X. Um, <laughs> I said to him, I said to him, could have swore I saw you taking a picture converge. He goes, I'm convergeless. Yep. That's I'm true. pretty sure I saw you take a pic. He goes, I stole it. Great <laughs> artist steal, Frank. Jot that down. So I jotted it down. It's in my notes. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin-backed loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. Maybe we could talk about the market structure for a second. Um, sure. A lot of these lenders, right, have pulled back or don't exist anymore. Uh, is it hard to kind of, you know, do borrow lend activity? Rates probably aren't as favorable if you're if you're trying to lever up, but you're more so. Are you you're lending out to get a yield? Yeah. So um, look, I, I I've been a, a trader for quite some time, going on 22 years now, and uh, one of the things that 
kills most shops or traders is leverage. And so we actually have it hard coded into our limited partner agreements for our fund that we will never use more than one X leverage notional. Mm. So uh, we think that's a wise thing to do in crypto. We would think that in, in general, um, that being said, there are obviously ways of, of expressing certain views where you could get some form of leverage, but it's not to the extent that, you know, you're going to have some sort of capital call or uh, liquidation event or something like that, right? So we haven't actually experienced difficulty um, on the borrow end side. Um, I think, you know, obviously some of the desks um, had big gut punches in their balance sheets, um, but I think that some of them have sort of uh, sorted themselves out and are in good shape. In addition to that, you know, I spoke speaking with our, our folks at, at Circle and um, they have a quite a bit of supply for market and and the way that we're trying to work with them on connecting that and and meeting that demand in the market is on the traditional side. So you can think like OTCs, uh, but also there's on chain stuff, right? So um, there's a company that uh, I've invested in the early round of called Friction that does on chain kind of structured products. And they do this behind the scenes with a lot of uh, market participants that are options dealers. They have a demand problem. Circle has a supply problem. So the difference is, is that Friction's business is actually on chain versus, you know, some sort of ISA that's being created or like a traditional kind of OTC desk or broker dealer, right? Or prime broker. Do you matter. think that folks are going to shift much of their activity from the more centralized regime to this on-chain derivatives structured product lending world where they have the transparency that maybe they didn't in the former yeah so it's it's a really great great question i think it's investor dependent right so on the one hand you do have sophisticated family offices mm -hmm. that absolutely want this type of exposure um because of the yields that you can generate with these types of on-chain structured products and programs that exist and they can know their counterparty risk right mm -hmm. the the risk there of course is implicit with any smart contract which is smart contract risk right but that's implicit if you're going to do anything on chain so there's not really much you can do beyond maybe buy some insurance mm -hmm. um I would argue that the more dinosaur-like institutions are light years away from this. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's just too much regulatory compliance, legal risk, political risk, brand reputational risk yeah. associated with it. But I do believe over time, the value of the transparency will uh, reach a tipping point with, I think, these institutions. I just don't think it's anytime soon, certainly not in this market environment. No, it's going to take another bull run to maybe inch them closer towards the the murky unknowns of, well, it's, it's pretty, it's transparent, right? That's the word. Well, and look, I mean, like right now, it, it could be, it could be the lack of transparency in traditional markets that drives them towards these institutional grade products, right? So the, the company that I mentioned, Friction, and there's other companies that are doing it as well, they're providing this kind of white glove institutional onboarding service. They've got KYC ML, mm -hmm. they've got, you know, all of the, all of the sort of bells and whistles that you would expect from say a traditional prime broker or, or OTC desk or something like that. Um, but it's, getting built in real time, right? So, and it hasn't been necessarily pressure tested and you don't have sort of the case studies for say some, you know, stodgy old investment bank or, you know, big fund or something that's using it yet, but that stuff's coming because in a lot of cases, the people that are funding these businesses and startups are funds, right? And so when they start to actually, you know, adopt some of these um, on-chain strategies uh, and generate real returns from it, that's a case study for the startup that they can actually go out mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, champion to folks on Wall Street. Understood. So you talk about DeFi 2.0. Is that the structured product element that you were describing or, or something else? Or No, great. Yeah, or I is mean, it that, encompass? It's part of it. Yeah. yeah. So, so look, um, we have a view that we think over time, 
all financial instruments are going to move on chain. Um, and there will be kind of like net new potential crypto native only type products that exist, right? Yield farming is kind of a canonical example. Didn't work out, obviously, but the point is it's a very crypto native thing. So DeFi 2.0, you know, we've Yield met farming's with, dead. Uh, I have no opinion on yield farming at this okay, point, except enough. I have zero exposure to it. Okay, <laughs> so you can draw your own conclusions. Um, but my point is that's a very crypto native thing, right? You're not really going to do that in traditional finance or you'll probably end up in jail. Um, so with DeFi 2.0, the types of contract, like the, the, the migration of a lot of traditional financial products uh, on chain is, uh, we think, a huge opportunity space. It's very difficult to pull off, right? So for example, we met with a team um, a few months back that's trying to bring interest rate swaps to, uh, to be on chain. I don't know how you do that. Like I actually mechanically don't know how that works. And as a technologist, I don't even know how you write the code for that, right? So there are certain things where we're like, maybe at some point there's another breakthrough in you know, smart contract programming or an L1 or some technological thing that enables something like that to happen, but not right now. On the other hand, things like structured products, that's a great incremental improvement to DeFi, right? It's basically saying like you can get, say, a covered call strategy by just depositing your USDC in there, right? Like that's that's pretty good move, right? We think that's, that's a, along the right path, but over time, we think there's gonna be a ton of these additional types of products that come from traditional finance on chain. Yeah, but it's not maybe gonna be the retail punters using it. I mean, I feel like that sounds a bit more institutional than the than the DeFi summer activity, which was just degenerates hopping from one yield farming opportunity to the mercenary next. capital. Yeah. There I mean was look no, there was no stickiness. Correct. I mean, so so the thing about structured products is that um, they're structured. They're structured number one. And number two, banks love them because they make a lot of money on yes. them, right? Well, we remember from uh, the great financial crisis. There you go. Maybe we'll have NFT CDOs. That would be wonderful. I would look <laughs> forward to that um, and shorting it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, no, look, I mean, the, the, the thing about, I, I think any business in general where you have kind of really high you know, rake fees or, or kind of middlemen fees, right? Baked into it, like a structured product at a bank, you move mm -hmm. that on chain, that becomes very capital efficient for people that actually want that exposure, right? It's how do you get them there? And this is part of like the onboarding that everybody's trying to solve in crypto and web three, et cetera, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, if you know, if you're an institutional trader or an institutional fund manager or an asset manager, and you have the ability to cut down, you know, 300 to 600 bips on a structured product down to zero or maybe 10 bips or something, it's a pretty compelling story, right? Um, so we, we think that there's that, like at, at some point, that threshold is gonna be like, wait a second, why am I paying all this money? It's for gonna be so capital efficient, you'll take the, the leap, even though it's, it's sort of more unknown and maybe potentially more regulatorily uncertain or unclear. That's right, yeah. Got it. So what, what did DeFi 1.0 get wrong? Or rather to, to ask the question the other way, what, what sort of, what did we get right? What's gonna have sticking power? Yeah, so um, there's a couple things, in my opinion, that DeFi got right. Uh, one is it was actually a really good pressure test for smart contract programming in general, right? We didn't really have a lot of pure play applications that were on the EVM. Um, and I think, you know, things like Curve and Aave and, and others were, they're still really great battle-tested applications um, that are on Ethereum. So there's that, there's like the pressure test of the tech, right? Which I think is, is Smart valuable. Smart contracts work. 
That's right. Yeah. And and by the way, they worked when the centralized lenders went under, right? Mm -hmm. That's another really good, I think, you know, checkbox or check mark for for on-chain um, or DeFi, DeFi protocols, right? So that, that's one aspect. I think the other interesting thing that happened with DeFi was, uh, and I think uh, Tushar at Multicoin talks about this. Um, mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, every bull market ends up kicking off with a new way of distributing tokens to people. Well, DeFi enabled this in a lot of different ways and got more users kind of onboarded, um, yield farming being one of these strategies. Um, there's obviously other strategies that that DeFi created, even just you know on-chain lending, et cetera. And then furthermore, even just the ability for NFTs to explode like they did on Ethereum and Solana last year. Yes, it's not a token to the extent that, you know, it's like USDC, but it's the T in NFT stands for token. And that was a new way of getting users into crypto. And that stemmed from, I think, a lot of the, pr the pressure testing that happened with, with DeFi 1.0. That's that's a pretty salient point. And so what maybe are you are you looking to invest in the equity of these companies that are maybe building or projects that are building in DeFi 2.0? Are are they are they even suggesting that they're going to launch a token? What I'm saying is basically tied to this idea that the age of the token has subsided and equity is hot again, or equity plus token warrant. Yeah, so uh, look, I think it's a great question because there was definitely a moment in 2021 where everybody was rushing a token out the door because people were just you know, gold rushing into it, right? We, we are set up that we can do private equity, right? So standard VC deals. We're set up that we can do safe plus warrants, so it, it, it token warrants, so in the case that it converts. And we're set up to do SAFs. SAFs have definitely slowed down for sure. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, the, I don't want to say that like the, the notion of the token is over because I think one of the, the powerful things that happened with the ICO craze, even though, yes, it was another huge excessive, you know, run in the markets um, from 2017, 18, uh, ending in 18, I should say. Uh, the beauty of that was that for the first time you could be anybody with an internet connection globally and invest in a startup, right? Like, yeah, I know a protocol isn't really a startup, but like they're, they kind of are startups, like mm -hmm. they're projects and whatever, right? That unlock, if you go back to like traditional venture capital the past like 30, 40 years, typically VC was like a bunch of guys in a room raised money from which rich people and kind of gate kept the process for startups that they would invest in. And kudos to them, it took a lot of risk, but it was very gate kept, gate kept process. Then you had AngelList launch and it kind of like completely blew the doors off of traditional venture, right? The next iteration of that is something like an ICO or the ability for projects, protocols, companies, et cetera, to raise money through a token. Now, again, I'm not gonna opine on the legal aspect, I'm not a lawyer, but the point that I'm getting to is that that unlock from gate kept, you know, guys that raise a fund to angel list, which is better, but not fully mm -hmm. open to literally anybody with an internet connection in an Ethereum or Solana or whatever wallet can participate. That to me is a massive unlock. And I don't think tokens are going away in that sense. I think the difference is, is that we have to have more, uh, uh, when we talk to founders, we ask them, how are you gonna responsibly kind of put your token into market? How are you thinking about actually putting token in the hands of your users, your What's network participants? So we're back to asking uh, why token, not when token. <laughs> well, so look, I think uh, there was a guy on the panel yesterday that brought up, brought up a good point where the governance token was the thing for like the past, you know, call it whatever, mm -hmm. two years or something, right? I do think there's some validity to that, but it also got kind of 
mashed together with insane yield farms and, and these sort of uh, insane lending rates and stuff that you could get because they were trying to stimulate people to come in and like be a part of this new protocol or network and own this token. The problem with that is, is that really smart quant shops are just mercenary capital gonna come over and gobble all that up within 24 to 48 hours, make a bunch of money and leave, right? Mm -hmm. So I think on the one hand, there is some benefit to governance token, it's still TBD. All of this stuff is TBD, right? Um, on the other hand, when we talk to founders, we say, hey, are you gonna release, I don't know, 50% of your tokens or 5% of your tokens at the TGE, token generation event? If they say 5%, we're gonna say, you're gonna see a spike and an asymptotic drop to zero for your token. You probably don't want that, right? And I think this is also what's really unique about founders that are starting companies in Web3 that have never started a company before. They're having to like deal with upset investors because their tokens are not higher, right? And I keep telling them, I'm like, look, you have no control over that. Now, for founders going forward, I try to guide them in a way that says, how do you want to think about responsibly putting your token out there such that you're not spending all day dealing with Discord and Twitter and other people and upset? Maybe activist investors. Bingo, right? Exactly. Like myself. No, uh, do, you take, do you take <laughs> aggressive stances or approaches? Absolutely not. With the, no. no. No, I mean, look, like uh, there, are, there are folks that bring that skill set and discipline from TradFi into crypto. And we don't see that as beneficial to us or the firm or the industry. Um, we think that there's significant upside just in investing in really great founders, great projects, moonshots here and there, right? But also doing it in a responsible way, like I mentioned, managing a liquid portfolio such that, you know, if things do get out of whack again, you do the right thing and you know you don't sort of crystallize your carry at the end of the year and then you're down 90% the next year like that's something that is just a non-starter for us got it what do you think your um what about your least successful bet in crypto coming on the show no. okay <laughs> yeah in, in crypto um <laughs> my least successful bet in crypto that i will publicly admit to is probably buying some like third derivative dog coin on Solana mm -hmm. and it's just useless and worthless. And it was a, it was almost like it was I, one of your moonshots. It was one of my moonshots. Yes. Um, no, it was, it was during the, the crazy run of, I think Q3 and Q4 last year. And it was, things were just nuts. And I actually got caught up in the entertainment side of it. Um, very expensive entertainment, you know, ticket that I, that I purchased there. So yeah, it was, I don't even remember the name of it cause it's, I don't want it in my memory to be totally clear, but uh, I survived, so I'm okay. I'm glad you lived to tell the tale. <laughs> well, sir, thanks again for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, anytime. Yeah, definitely, we should do this again. Frank, nothing would bring me greater joy than to come back on your podcast again. Thank you so much. Where, uh, where can people learn more about um, Asymmetric and, and yourself? Uh, you can go to asymmetric.financial, but you won't learn much. Um, the best thing to do is probably follow me on Twitter at Joe McCann. Is it one of those, like, are, are you going for like a Rentech type of website where it's just the name and the cities you're based in? Uh, not even that, but yes, um, Rentech is a good analog because we are building a lot of proprietary in-house software. So yes. you would be, uh, you would be wise to use that analog. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, no worries. Thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.